I want to share with you this morning from Psalm 51. It's one of the most intimate prayers I think you find in all of the scripture. I think it's one of the most affectionate, one of the most heartfelt prayers that you will see recorded for us in all of God's revelation. Psalm 51. You know, we have said before, we love the Psalms, right? We love them because they are so personally intense. It's like a testimony, correct? It's like a testimony. Some of you, you've been in testimonial services. Some of you, you remember those services. We used to have them a lot of times when I was growing up. We would do it on Sunday night or so. I don't know if the preacher just didn't have a sermon at that moment. But he said, he said that he felt led to be able to kind of have people share testimonies. And and people would share and people would tell all kinds of things. And maybe it was blessings. Maybe they talked about the blessings that God had given. Hey, and many of us can share today, by the way. The blessings that God gave us even this last week as he protected us in the midst of all the severe weather. And that also reminds me that we need to be praying for those on the south side of Ruston who took a lot of damage. We need to pray for them and we need to do what we can to help. And I'm going to share more maybe later in this service of some of the ways we can volunteer to help. But maybe they stood and they shared blessing. Maybe they stood and they shared challenges. Maybe they stood and they shared uh, the different things that God had led them through. Maybe they just recalled God's forgiveness. And some of you who've been there, you remember by the end of the service, there wasn't much of a dry eye you would find. Because testimonies grip us. They're experiences of individuals, real life experiences. I want you to hear today the real life experience. I want you to hear today the cry for forgiveness. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about this great king, King David. We've noted him and we have praised him rightfully so. We have known that he is a man after God's own heart. But even a man after God's own heart struggles with sin and temptation. And last week we talked about David and we talked about how he was... There on that portico and he peers down and he sees this woman named Bathsheba who is bathing. Well, he watched her until he wanted her. He watched her and lusted after her until he called for her. And then, of course, we know all of the sin that transpired afterwards. David, the great king. Guilty of lust, guilty of adultery, guilty of deception, guilty of murder itself. And then, of course, David does everything he can to cover it up. Do you remember as we closed last week, I read for you the last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11. And there, that one nugget at the end of that chapter said, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. Everybody else, it it seemed that David was still the same man, that things just were exactly like they were before. But for God, he knew what had happened. I wanted to (coughs) kind of entitle this in the beginning, uh, someone is always watching or somebody always knows. Because somebody always seems to know, right? Hey, you grew up in Ruston. Everybody knows. 
not all of you grew up in Ruston, but you've been here long enough to know. I grew up in a place very similar to Ruston. And it seemed like before I did what I was going to do, my parents already knew. The word had spread. But I want you to know that no matter how you think you have concealed your sin, how you have covered it up, how your plan worked, there is always one that will know. It says this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord knew. And months go by. Months go by until God brings forth his strategy to bring David to his knees. Look in Psalm 51. I want to begin with the title. Some of you have seen the titles of the Psalms. We may call them like subtitles or superscripts or whatever we might refer to them as. But they're titles to the Psalms. And in the original Hebrew, in the Masoretic text that we read now, which is the copy of the Hebrew passages, we know that it is included in the text itself. As a matter of fact, if you sit in a Hebrew class, you're going to translate this title as verse 1 because it is incorporated in the text itself. And this is what it says to us. A psalm of David, or to the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone, out, gone in to Bathsheba. So in the title, we have the context. We have the setting. We know that this psalm, that this expression, this prayer of David is set in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 12. That this is the moment where Nathan confronts David. I want you to see the confrontation here. The confrontation that comes in David's life. Now timing, many biblical scholars will say it's probably about 12 months later. Now get this, 12 months later that Nathan will come to David. In other words, all this time passes, and I'm sure that in some way David thought everything had been cleared, everything had been covered. For 12 months or so, this had continued on in the heart of David. Someone has said that God's wills grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. In other words, it may seem to be slow, but understand when God is producing his work, he is grinding exceedingly fine in our lives. God has a strategy and God has a timing. God knows exactly when he will bring forth his truth, bring forth that which will bring David to his knees. The confrontation comes some 12 months or so later, and it comes from a messenger named Nathan. Now, we've met Nathan before. We've seen him in the scripture. We've studied through him, uh, through David's life, and we had seen that David had consulted this man, this prophet. Remember when he had consulted him? You remember? I'm telling you, you boost a man's confidence. I'm going to have to go back and preach some of these messages again. It's okay. You'll never know. See, why do I study new stuff? I can do the old stuff. Y'all would never know. <laughs> David had gone to Nathan specifically and said, Hey, I believe God wants me to build the temple. 
And Nathan had said initially, David, God's with you. God is all over your life. People know that. You go ahead and build the temple. Until that night when God spoke to Nathan, he said, you go to David and you tell him he is not the one. So in other words, Nathan was the spiritual advisor. He was the prophet before David. Nathan was the one to confront David. Now, think of this. Confrontation is not something that comes easy, at least for most of us, right? Confrontation is not something that we just engage in. I'll tell you that I do not like any type of confrontation. I just don't. I I will try to do everything I can to get around confrontation. I have somebody else. Amen. Just can't stand it. Nathan knew that he had 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 to confront David. But David's the king. David is the one with all the power. Who can go before David, the king of Israel, the one that has the impeccable reputation, the man after God's own heart? Who can go to him except for Nathan? And David had respect for Nathan. And Nathan had a relationship with God in which he could hear from him and he could know the revelation that God was providing. And it would fall to Nathan. Nathan would enter stage right to bring confrontation, to bring truth to David. Let me just remind you of this again. I've said it several times over the last few weeks. But you and I need people in our lives who fear God more than they fear us. We need people in our lives that will look at us and share the truth in love. Now, I'll be honest. It's so much easier to hear the truth when you know that the person loves you and the person is in a relationship with you. For Nathan, he had had a relationship with David and he had loved David. And he believed that God was all over David's life. And yet Nathan also knew in this moment, in this time, David had miserably failed. And it fell to Nathan to confront David. He feared God more than he feared the king. He feared the consequences spiritually. He feared those spiritual consequences more than he did the temporal eternal or temporal earthly consequences that he might face from David. Let me remind you of the scripture that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27, 6. Another translation there says, Trustworthy are the bruises caused by the wounding of one who loves you. It's difficult to experience bruises in our lives. Wounds spiritually. But often they are necessary for us to see who we are and to see who God is. Nathan came. Now Nathan was smart. And I don't know how long David or God had given this to Nathan and how long Nathan had worked with God on the plan. I don't know how long that was. It could have been just a day. It could have been months. I, I don't know. But when Nathan comes to David, he comes to him in a very wise way. I mean, we could have taken this 
case scenario just today, a, week, a case study. We could have studied it. We could have tried to work out how do you go through confrontation. I mean, he gives us, Nathan gives us such a great example. But he goes to David. And you remember how this transpires in 2 Samuel chapter 12. That he goes to David and he doesn't just look at him and say, first of all, David, you know you've messed up. He doesn't do that. Wisely, he approaches David with a story. He basically says, David, I, I want to tell you something. Let me give you a story. I kind of like a story every now and then. You know, stories can kind of soften an approach. And, and Nathan says to David, said, let me tell you about these two guys. One had a lot. He had all kinds of herds and flocks. And he had everything you could imagine. But there's this other guy. And he was rather poor. And he had one little ewe lamb. And he loved that little lamb with everything that he had. As a matter of fact, when he went to the table, the little lamb went to the table. When he had a little cup to drink out of, he'd share the little cup with a lamb. In the evenings when he would lay down, he'd put that little lamb right there in his lap. He would get in his lazy boy, he would kick back, and the little lamb would keep him warm. Some of you got some pets like this, right? He loved that lamb with everything that he had. But the one that had everything, the one, the rich man, one day he was hosting a traveler. And he decided to throw a celebration, a banquet for this guy who had come to town. And instead of taking one of his many lambs, he decided he would go and take the one little lamb from this guy. David, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think about that story? You remember David? David said, as long as God lives, that guy will die. He will pay with his life. And he will also make restitution fourfold. He'll make restitution to that man. You could almost hear the indignant spirit of David. And then Nathan. Wisely approaching the king. Approaching him with the truth of the revelation of God. He looks at David. You remember those three words? Four words, huh? I can't count. I'm from Mississippi. You remember those four words? You are the man. David, you are the man. You're that guy. The one you just pronounced judgment upon. The one that you grew indignant about. You are the man. Sometimes it's difficult to hear those words. But let me tell you that it is often necessary to have that type of confrontation in our lives. Hopefully our brothers and sisters will come to us and will challenge us and will speak to us. The truth and love. But let me say this. I want you to know that even though God uses human instruments, God himself confronts us through the Holy Spirit that he sends into our lives. 
And you and I may have somebody approach us and confront us about our sin, but we also know that it is the Holy Spirit who speaks to us and confronts us about how we have fallen short of the glory. And all of us in this place, listen to me, all of us in this place need to understand that we have a sinful nature that continues to try to overwhelm us and to bring us down. Temptation will come in our lives. All of us need to understand that the evil one is doing everything he can to place a target upon us as believers to mar our testimony, to bring us to the place of stumbling in our relationship with God. We need confrontation and we need conviction. Let me just continue to read this prayer for you, okay? And try to imagine for a moment a broken king crying out to God. Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak. And blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in, within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Do you hear the emotion? Do you hear the conviction? Because confrontation in our lives can lead us to the moment of conviction as well. I believe personally that God had been working in David's life over these last few months. And I believe as I hear his testimony here, that God had been convicting him of his sin even when he was silent. In verse 8 it said that the bones you have broken may rejoice. In other words... As David went through these last few months, yes, thinking that he had covered up things, but also thinking in himself, when will the day come when, when people would know? Or if nothing else, David, a man after God's own heart, must have surely felt that he had been isolated from the fellowship of God. If nothing else, he must have sensed that. Hey, you and I, you and I have had sin in our lives. Things have happened. And you and I know what it's like to live in disfellowship with God. See, I, I, I believe that God always pursues us as his children. I believe he always does that. And I, I believe that once we're saved, we're always saved. But I believe that there are moments that we can 
unintentionally or intentionally walk away from him. And I believe that that can be some of the most miserable times of our lives. I've often said it's more miserable for the backslidden Christian than it is for the non-believer. You know why? Because we as believers, we know what true fellowship is with the Father. We've come to salvation. We've come to relationship. So we know. Non-believers have not experienced that type of relationship yet. So they are living in darkness. But those of us who have lived in the light and we've seen the fellowship of God, when we walk away from him, we, can, we see miserable days. Because the Holy Spirit who resides within us walks with us as we walk away and he convicts us of where we go. There is conviction that sets in. It, it weighs on us. Look, look at the serious terms that he uses here in this passage. Verse 2, he says something about iniquity. It means to be warped, twisted, or crooked. In other words, what I have thought, what I have done is nothing but twistedness, crookedness. It represents a warped view of life. The word sin that you find in this passage, often translated into the English sin, means to fall short of the mark. Kind of the New Testament idea that we are falling short of the glory of God. The word transgression that you find in this passage speaks about willful rebellion against the God of heaven. Do you see how he uses all these different terms and how each one communicates a different aspect of his failure and also how all of them together speak to the seriousness of sin itself, iniquity, that warped, twisted crookedness of life, sin to be able to fall short, transgression, the willful rebellion. He feels it, my friends. He feels the weight of it, the conviction of it. People will come and they'll talk to me sometimes about the conviction they feel. And I tell, I've told people before, I said, you know what? I know it doesn't feel great, but thank God for conviction. Thank God that he cares enough about you. That he did not just leave you or cast you away. But he is still working in your life, even if it's through conviction, that he is working in your life to bring you back to him. And it may be miserable for the moment, but for eternity it is beneficial. The conviction that comes, that weighs, it affects us. I said that David referenced broken bones. I have seen people whose health began to decline because of the conviction in their lives. I remember, I remember one time when I was pastoring my second church, I guess, that I saw changes happening, physical changes in an individual. An individual that, of course, I loved and I had prayed for. And I finally remember, like, I, I finally went to him and said, what, what's going on? Is there something happening that I don't know about? Is there some kind of physical diagnosis? Is there something? I'm not trying to be 
knows it. I just, I'm concerned about you because I see these things that have happened in the last few months physically to you. What's happening? He began to open up about the spiritual struggles and the spiritual issues that he had had. And I remembered David's experience where he says, it's it's like when I was silent, my, my bones, my inward parts, they grew weak. They felt as though they had been crushed. Conviction can do that in our lives. But when conviction comes, when confrontation comes and conviction comes, then let me say to you, confession should come. It's always a challenge to see how people respond when confrontation comes into their lives or conviction. You know, I often want God just to lay it out for me and say, God, show me exactly how this person is going to respond. I never know. I never know if the person's going to get red or get right. You know what I'm talking about? Whether they will become angry or contrite. David, it's not because he got caught. You can hear it in his words. You can see it in his life afterwards. This is true confession. He gets right. He speaks to God. He takes responsibility. Again, hear all of these first-person pronouns. Have mercy upon me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you have I sinned continue to look down through there. You hear all that? He takes personal responsibility for his sin. He says, I confess. I know it's me. Oh, it's so easy to blame people. It's so easy to blame people. To try to create some type of narrative that if this hadn't happened and this person hadn't spoken to me that way and this, it's so easy. Think about Adam. Remember Adam? I mean, he played the blame game. So did Eve. I mean, Eve was kind of like, hey, you know, it's this serpent. You know, if he hadn't lured me into this, Adam, he kind of blamed everybody. He was kind of like, hey, you know, it's her. She handed it to me. And Adam even rationalized to the point of blaming God. This woman whom you gave me, God, I can trace it all the way back to you. I will tell you that blame never brings forgiveness. Blame never restores the relationship. Only confession of recognizing the responsibility that God has given you and that God has given me to live appropriately before him. Verse 17, David prays later. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. 
These, O God, you will not despise. In other words, it is a brokenness. It is a confession that we bring to him. And we simply say, God, I'm sorry. And again, we're not sorry because we're caught. We're we're sorry. We experience it. We confess our sins. May I just say to you, just hear me. Just hear me this morning. We need, once again, true, genuine confession in our churches. If we want to see the power, I, I was listening to a, a friend of mine who pastors in Denver, and he says, when you look at Pentecost, you see power, people and power. He said, today, which one is missing in the church? We still have people. I mean, if you look collectively across this nation and across this world, there's still a lot of people. But especially in our nation, we are an anemic church. And I believe one of the reasons is because we have not dealt fully with the sin in our own hearts and lives. We've seen confrontation. We've seen conviction. But we have not come to our knees and confessed what we have failed in our lives. There's confession. Confession that leads to true concealment. I I love this, okay? I love this. This is where it just begins to really get good. David tried to conceal his sin for months. And he was inadequate at it. He could not do it. But when I look at this passage, I recognize that God is able to conceal his sin. That is to atone for his sin. That is to forgive him of his sin and bless his sin. Bless his repentance from sin, I should say. It is a beautiful picture. Look at the words again that David will use. Wash. Purge. Cleanse. Wash. It actually, the word here refers to like washing a garment. Um, and, and some of us, we, we kind of may have to think back a little bit and about this idea of washing garments in the Old Testament day. Um, <coughs> maybe as close as I've gotten as I've been down to Nicaragua before. And uh, to go out to the river uh, one of the places there and, and watch the ladies wash, wash those garments. Have you ever seen that? Um, some of you say, oh, I've done some of those things. That, that's cool. Um, but they would wash those garments. And, and have you ever noticed, though, how they wash those things? I mean, they're pretty tough. You're, I mean, like, they will beat those things. They will scrub those things. I'm going to tell you that when I saw all this happening, I started backing out because I did not want to tangle with any lady that I saw down in that river that day. She was tough. They were tough as they did this. When I read this and I try to look at the word wash, which refers to a garment, it does indicate that this cleansing is not easy. It is not necessarily pleasant. But it is necessary. Wash. God, whatever it takes, cleanse. Purge, which is a ritual cleansing before service. Hyssop 
in particular that's mentioned in verse 7. It was used to cleanse individuals when they had come in contact with a corpse. Also, when you experience the defilement of leprosy, it would be used to hopefully bring some type of cure. Think of this. It was used in these um, extreme types of areas to bring cleansing. Also, during the Passover, that blood was applied with a hiss- this purging. The blood was applied to the doorpost and above the door to demonstrate sacrifice. David prayed that God would cover his sin. That God would conceal it. He knew that he had failed in his own efforts. But oh, for God to be able to clean and wash those of us in this place who have recognized salvation, we know what it's like to be cleansed and washed and our sins to be concealed. We know what it is like For the sinner, it is cleansing from the guilt of sin. For the believer, for the saint, it is cleansing from the defilement of sin. It is washing, it is cleansing. Oh, you remember the old hymn? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It is still the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. It is still his salvation and his sacrifice that conceals our sin. The scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we confess our sins... The scripture says that he will forgive us and he will cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and he will remember them no more. It is because of that, because of that confession that there is concealment. And then, oh, the confirmation of being able to sing it and praise him for it. Just listen to this last as we close Psalm 51, do you hear this? He says, hey, restore the joy of your salvation. You know, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit will be taken away from us as believers. I think once the believer has the Holy Spirit, once God comes into our lives, he will always be with us. It's different than the Old Testament, different from what David is praying here. But I do think that we need to pray that God would restore the joy of our salvation to us. That we'd be able to walk with that. And look in verse 13, what had happened is the confirmation of it would go out to others and they would hear it. Listen, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be comforted to you, converted to you. 
Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken, a contrite spirit. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Listen to what he says. He says, God, when you do this in my life and when you cleanse me, I want you to know that I will be first in line to praise you and to glorify for what you've done. I will tell others of your great mercy and I will see people who will come to know you because of what has happened in my life. I will give testimony and there will be restoration. There'll be reconciliation. Folks, those of us who are saved in this place, we should stand and we should say so because God has given us forgiveness and he has given us life. And you and I, all of us in this place, we were lost. We were in our sin without him. But Jesus came to die on the cross of Calvary and through that perfect sacrifice to give us everything that we need so that through our confession, our repentance and our faith, we would know what life is. And those of us who've gone astray, those of us who've walked And God has been so patient with us and he has pursued us. We never got away from his grace. His grace always showed itself in our lives. When we come back to him, we're able to stand once again and say, this is where we were, but this is where God brought us. And through that testimony, others can come to know him and come back in fellowship with him. Forgive me. I am so grateful that every time I walked away, His Spirit lovingly drew me back. And when I came back, I found the loving arms of the Father open to embrace me, to forgive me, to restore me. Where are you walking? You think everything's been pushed under the rug? Time has passed and no one seems to know. And yet the conviction of God still settles in on you. God is calling this morning. He is confronting you. You experience the conviction, you feel it. Would you confess? And would you begin a new phase of the joy that this salvation can bring to you? Forgive me. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we can never run past your grace. 
as believers, we can never get away from the Holy Spirit's presence and conviction in our lives. But God, I pray this morning for those of us who are believers who need to do some business with you this morning. Confession, repentance, pouring our lives, our hearts out to you. God, we need restoration. We need reconciliation. We know we only get that through you. Lord, you've been working on this strategy to bring us to our knees. Lord, even when we're on our back, we know the only way to look is up. Father, I pray we'd cry out to you this morning. For that one which is lost, never has experienced relationship, salvation, or forgiveness, show them this morning how much you love them and how you sent your son, your only son, the only one you'd ever have to die for us. God, move in this place. Show your glory. Show your mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name.